You're listening to the History of Ancient Greece, an outstanding podcast detailing the wonders and works of the proud sons of Hellas. By now, you've seen that the Greeks were not shy of squabbling with their neighbors, and in their long history, few rivals gave the Greeks a greater run for their money than the Phoenicians and their heirs, the Carthaginians. Starting from the barren coast of Phoenicia, these enterprising merchants, sailors, and explorers sailed the wine-dark seas alongside the Greeks from the beginning. Later, a group of Phoenician exiles under Queen Dido founded a settlement in North Africa, which would one day rule an empire which stretched from Spain to Egypt. Although dismissed as barbarous by the Greeks, the city of Carthage would become renowned for her colossal architecture, her agricultural prowess, her mighty war fleet, and her fabulous wealth, truly worthy of her title as Queen of the Mediterranean. Challenger of Rome in three world wars and birthplace of Hannibal Barca, a man who nearly single-handedly arrested the destiny of the Romans with fire and steel, the history of Carthage is one of the most fascinating stories that has come down to us from antiquity. I'm William Hubbard, creator of the Layman's Historian podcast. In this podcast, I tell the story of the rise and fall of this ancient civilization, from the moment the Phoenicians first took to the Mediterranean Sea to the final minutes of the Carthaginians' last stand in the temples of the Bursa. If I've piqued your interest regarding this great yet often overlooked civilization, check out The Layman's Historian on iTunes or at www.thelaymanshistorian.wordpress.com after you finish with Ryan's excellent episode, of course. Until then, take care and read more history. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 77, From Childbirth to Adolescence. Today's episode is brought to you by our new June Patreon supporters, Maja Saranda, Cheryl Holland, and Konstantin Kochikov. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. What was it like in ancient Athens for a young girl or boy from birth to death? Well, throughout today's episode, we are going on that exact journey. First up is one's day of birth. And like most momentous occasions in ancient Greece, childbirth too was cloaked in ritual. In the absence of hospitals, most births took place in the home. When the woman went into labor, the walls around the house were smeared with pitch to prevent the pollution of childbirth from seeping into the community. Babies were delivered by the women of the family, with male physicians only being present in situations of serious consequence, like when there were fears for the mother's life. 
Medical texts indicate that the presence of male physicians would have caused embarrassment and shame to a woman in labor. Instead, if assistance was needed, the woman in labor would have relied on her network of female friends and neighbors. In Aristophanes' Women in the Assembly, for example, the female protagonist explains her early morning absence to her husband by telling him that she had to rush out in the middle of the night in order to assist a friend who had gone into labor. A woman in labor also would have been guided by a Maya, or midwife, that was beyond the age of bearing children, meaning she was past menopause and had gained much experience in her own childbirths, so she was able to combine medical expertise with proficiency in ritual. In doing so, various potions or drugs, called pharmaca, would be administered, spells intoned, and the appropriate deities invoked. Childbirth was presided over by Demeter Korotrophos, or their nurturer of the young, as well as Hera, the goddess of marriage, and tangentially, of childbirth. But women in labor were placed under the special protection of Hera's daughter, Eletheia, or literally, she who comes. The goddess was so named because her arrival was believed to enable birth to take place. Because of her role in this, Eletheia became known as the goddess of childbirth. Artemis was also prominent in the birthing ritual. It was necessary for a prayer to be delivered to her before delivery, and to dedicate clothing to her shrine at Brauron afterwards. According to Euripides, the garments of the women who had died in childbirth were also dedicated at this sanctuary. And so, the goddess was evidently remembered even when her visit to a woman in labor had been a harsh one. Death in childbirth was a constant threat, as it would be until the modern era, where modern medical practices have significantly decreased such a risk. In Euripides' Medea, the heroine compares the risks of childbirth with those of death in battle when she says, quote, I would rather stand three times behind a shield than bear a child once, end quote. Female wisdom concerning childbirth no doubt was handed down by word of mouth from one mother to her daughter and among her peers. Consequently, we possess very little information about the actual childbirthing process, as there was no real need for any sort of written manual or the like. So we must piece together what few snippets of information that we do have. It seems that women typically gave birth in a seated position, either on a birthing stool or in the case of an emergency, on the lap of one of the helpers. It was probably unusual for a woman to be delivered lying down, though it certainly did occur. The Hippocratic Treatise, titled On the Diseases of Women, refers to the use of pharmaca, or drugs, to speed up delivery, and sometimes labor would have to be induced. The Hippocratic Treatise, titled On Cutting Up the Embryo, describes a rather violent method, where four female assistants seize the woman by her legs and arms and then give her ten firm shakes, after which they place her on a bed with her legs in the air and then violently shake her some more by her shoulders. At the moment the baby came out from the birthing canal, the mother's helpers uttered a ritual cry of joy, called an ololuge. There is a description in the Hippocratic Treatise, titled On the Nature of Women, of an ingenious procedure for the extraction of the afterbirth, which involves placing the baby on two water-filled goat skins before the umbilical cord has been cut. After the goat skins are pierced, and as the child sinks slowly towards the ground, the afterbirth is gently pulled out by the cord. Then, the newborn baby was given a ritual bath to clean him or her of the pollution that came about from the birthing process, after which he or she was wrapped in the traditional swaddling clothes. 
which needed to happen immediately because they believed that the limbs would become misshapen unless they molded into their natural form while still soft. Meanwhile, the father was notified that his child had been born, and he announced it to the community at large by either hanging an olive branch on the front door of the house to proclaim the birth of a boy, or a strip of wool in the case of a girl. The midwife continued to care for the mother and the child for several days following the birth. We learn from Plato that one unpleasant task that fell to her was the organization of the exposure of the baby, as we mentioned in episode 75 if for any reason it was decided that he or she should not be reared. An excerpt from a late 4th century BC sacred law of the Greek colony of Cyrene in North Africa defines the extent of the pollution caused by childbirth. Quote, The woman in the childbed pollutes the house. She pollutes anyone inside the house, but she does not pollute anyone outside the house, unless he comes inside. Any person who is inside shall be polluted for three days but he will not pollute anyone else, no matter wherever this person goes. End quote. Because the passage from one stage of life to another was thought to be fraught with danger, the Greeks paid very close attention to the junctures that marked these divisions. Rites of passage have the effect of strengthening group solidarity, and thus virtually every freeborn Greek would have experienced a sense of multi-layered communal belonging that is virtually unknown in the modern world. A newborn Athenian baby went through his or her first rite of passage on the fifth or seventh day after birth, when he or she was ceremoniously introduced and accepted into the home and placed under the protection of the household deities. The ceremony, which was called the amphidromia, or the running around, was so named because the child's father would symbolically run around the domestic hearth of the oikos, holding his infant in his arms, in order to consecrate it to Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. Once this occurred, which signified that the child was officially accepted into the family, it became illegal to reject the child by exposure. A banquet was typically held in the evening, and relatives would bring gifts for the newborn, called opteria, meaning the scene. So named in this case because this was the first time that they had set eyes upon the child. Among the gifts typically included were charms in the form of amulets that were hung around the baby's neck for protection against bad luck or the evil eye. There also took place the ritual cleansing of the mother and any member who had come into contact with her during childbirth. Once purified, she was allowed to return to her normal duties as a wife. On the tenth day after birth, the child would be given his or her name in a ceremony called the Decate. They waited over a week to name the child because infant mortality was so high in the ancient world, and it was thought, as Aristotle in his History of Animals notes, that most children, if they were going to die, would have died before the seventh day, though this wasn't always the case. Names revealed family membership, and children were identified by their own names and patronymics. Most firstborn boys were usually given the name of their paternal grandfather, and the secondborn after his maternal grandfather as is still the custom in Greece to this day, which is evidence of the emphasis on the continuity of the family line. His full name would consist of his given name, his father's name, his deem, and occasionally his tribe itself. Because rules of etiquette for ancient Athens required the suppression of respectable women's names, at least while they were living, the quantity of evidence available for the study of their names is far less than for men's names. Nevertheless, the data indicates that the first daughter, and there typically wasn't more than one, as we discussed in episode 75, 
was also named after her father's family line, that being her paternal grandmother, and this was the only personal name that she received. According to Xenophon and his Oikonomicus, women naturally have more affection for newborn children than men. Take that for what it's worth, but there is literary evidence to suggest that fathers enthusiastically greeted the birth of sons, while the birth of daughters was less valued. The desire for an heir to perpetuate the family line would have been partially responsible for these reactions. Nevertheless, some men might have been quite happy to be presented with a daughter once the obligatory son had already appeared on the scene. In fact, Athenian plays are filled with references to the affection that elderly men had for their daughters. For example, in Euripides' Suppliant Women, remembering how his daughter used to cradle his head in her arms and kiss his face, Iphis says, quote, To an aged father, there's nothing more sweet than a daughter. Boys have greater courage, but they are less given to tender endearments. End quote. Generally speaking, women would care for and breastfeed their own children, but if a couple was well off, they might have two or three slaves, one of whom might be an experienced wet nurse. In those situations, the mother would be spared the burdens of motherhood, though she no doubt missed out on many of its benefits too. Feeding bottles from clay pottery are also known, and there is evidence from vase paintings for cradles made of wicker work or wood. A red figure vase painting dating to around 450 BC and now housed in the British Museum shows a lovely scene of a mother receiving her child from a nurse attendant, while others of similar date show babies crawling or beginning to walk. Nurses also feature prominently in Greek tragedy, which suggests that they were important members of the household. Although most nurses were slaves, a few were impoverished freeborn women, as we discussed in episode 69. Seranus, a 2nd century AD physician, in his treatise titled Gynecology, recommended that the ideal nurse should be self-controlled, sympathetic, well-tempered, Greek, and tidy. Whether slave or free, many won the confidence and gratitude of their masters and mistresses, as is indicated by the fact that they often retained a position of trust in the household, even into old age. The following semi-humorous sepulchral inscription testifies to the enduring bond that existed between a nurse and her former charge. Quote, Mikos looked after Askri all her life, even in old age. When she died, he set up this monument for future generations to see. And so the old woman departed from this life, having received due recompense for her breasts. End quote. Before the age of one, the son of an Athenian citizen was presented by the father to his fratry at the Apotoria, a three-day festival held in the month of Pianepsion, which is late October or early November. As the child was presented, the father took an oath on the altar of his fratry that he was indeed the father of the child, and that its mother was an Athenian by birth, thus ensuring the child's citizenship. At the age of four, an Athenian boy was brought to the Anthesteria, or Flower Festival, which took place in the early spring. We discussed this festival in great detail in episode 48. For the child in particular, here he was presented with a wreath to wear on his head, a small jug known as a coas, and a small cart. This was also the occasion when he experienced his first taste of wine. Since wine was the gift of the god Dionysus, and drinking of it was invariably accompanied by a religious ritual, the Anthesteria was thus a rite of passage, marking an important transitional moment in the child's life. 
It seems probable that this ritual signaled his formal admission into the Athenian religious community, and hence into the polis itself. The Athenians felt particular tenderness towards children who died before attending their first anthesteria. In fact, a coas was placed beside them in the grave, evidently to compensate them for the fact that they had not received one in life. In the graves of even younger children, feeding bottles have been found. In some cases, the black glaze around the spout has worn away, indicating that the bottle had been used before the baby died. Infant mortality, particularly in the first year of life, was extremely high in ancient Greece, and the ancient world in general, accounting for at least a quarter of all live births, and estimates have placed it as high as 40%. Diarrheal diseases, resulting from a lack of clean drinking water and the absence of a satisfactory waste disposal system, the two main killers in the developing world today, were the major causes of infants' deaths, as well as the previously mentioned practice of infanticide. And so the majority of Greek mothers might have had to bury at least one child in their lifetime. Several Athenian funerary monuments commemorate the deaths of small children, One bears an inscription that informs us that the deceased, whose name was Philostratos and who bore the nickname Little Chatterbox, was, quote, a source of joy to his parents before the spirit of death bore him away, end quote. Another monument shows a pudgy child of about three stretching out his hands in the direction of a bird that his adolescent sister is holding. The inscription on the gravestone states that it was erected in honor of Menesagora and her little brother Nikokaris, quote, whom the doom of death snatched away, end quote, perhaps as a result of a joint accident or an illness to which they both succumbed. Girls who died before marriage were mourned for their failure to reach maturity. Memorial vases for dead girls in classical Athens often portrayed them dressed as brides and were sometimes shaped like lotrophoroi the vases which held the sacred water they used to bath with on their wedding day, as we mentioned in episode 74. Also, numerous dedications were made to healing deities, such as Asclepius, by mothers on behalf of their sick children. And in one Athenian epitaph from the 4th century BC, a woman named Xenoclia is said to have died of grief for her young son. There is also certainly no shortage of references in tragic literature to the agony experienced by mothers at the loss of a child, with two prevalent examples being Clytemnestra over the loss of her daughter Iphigenia and Andromache over her son Astyanax. From the 4th century BC onwards, children appear much more in artistic representations. One big avenue for this is the games that children played. Evidence of toys comes from literature, vase paintings, and surviving examples of the actual toys themselves. Most toys, if not all, were homemade though, usually out of clay. There is archaeological evidence for miniature horses on wheels, boats, spinning tops, and rattles. Dolls with movable limbs were also very popular, as no doubt were rag dolls and stuffed animals, though no examples have survived. In Aristophanes' Clouds, the doting father, Strepsiades, tells how his precious son used to construct his own toys. Quote, Oh, he's clever, all right. When he was only knee-high to a grasshopper, he made houses out of clay and wooden boats and chariots from bits of leather, and he carved pomegranates into the shape of little frogs. You just can't imagine how bright he was. End quote. Boys at puberty and girls at marriage customarily dedicated their toys to the gods. 
A favorite game thought to have been especially popular among girls was Knuckle Bones, or Astralagoy. Each player tossed the knuckle bones in the air and attempted to catch them on the back of their hand. If she dropped any, she attempted to pick them up without dislodging those already resting on her hand. Another popular game, which resembled checkers, was played on a board with black and white squares. It is frequently represented on vases with Achilles and Ajax as players, as they enjoy an interval piece from the battlefield. We discussed this particular image in more detail in episode 17. The best throw was three sixes, a number which incidentally was proverbial for good luck. Its invention was ascribed to Palamedes, a Greek warrior who fought in the Trojan War, which indicates that no matter the actual origins of the game, it was believed to be very ancient. Of course, there were games that took place outside as well. One such popular game is called Ephedrismos, in which a stone was placed upright on the ground and balls or pebbles were thrown at it from a distance. The loser's eyes were then covered, and he or she had to carry the other player on his or her back until they found and touched the stone. Ball games were also extremely popular, despite the fact that it was impossible, at that point in time, to produce a completely spherical ball. Instead, children used to blow up a pig's bladder and then try to make it rounder by heating it in the ashes of a fire. Some ancient ball games are still popular today. In one, the player who was it, threw the ball, and the others had to drop out one by one as they were hit. The forerunner of modern dodgeball. And of course, then as in now, the most popular form of entertainment for children came in the form of pets. Some animals were kept in the home from at least the time of Homer, who mentions domesticated dogs, particularly of note, was Argos, the dog of Odysseus. And the most popular pet in Athenian homes was a small dog, often represented on 5th century BC Attic gravestones and vases. Hares and quails were also quite popular as pets. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-R-E-E-C-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Girls underwent far fewer rites of passage in the course of their lifetimes, a reflection of their much more restricted social identity. Classical Athenian girls were not typically formally educated either. Rather, their mothers would have taught them the domesticated skills that they would need in order to run a household after they get married. 
and they rarely went out of the women's quarters of the household, though they did attend some religious festivals. A young unmarried woman who was nearing puberty was not sent on an errand to the Agora, because as Euripides puts it, quote, it was not nice for girls to creep through the crowd, end quote. And she ought not to be seen even standing on the roof of her own house. Athenian feelings on this matter seem to have been shaped as much by a concern for maintaining appearances as by a desire to keep young women away from the danger of male contact. The segregation of the girls and the lower classes may have been much less strict, though, as we discussed in episode 73. Also, girls may have been actively discouraged from becoming literate in order to keep them unspoiled. A fragment from a lost play by Menander states, axiomatically, quote, He who teaches his wife how to read and write does no good. He's giving additional poison to a horrible snake, end quote. Still, though, there were certainly those who picked up writing and reading by their own efforts, and there were certainly those who managed to become cultured and well-informed, though this number no doubt was minuscule and would have been from the wealthiest classes. In a law court speech by Lysias, titled Against Diogaiton, for example, a guardian accused of having defrauded his nephews of their inheritance is said to have been challenged on his administration of the estate by the boy's mother, who appears to have been perfectly familiar with the contents of an accounting book. Also, vase paintings in which women are shown in a domestic environment holding scrolls may represent the activities of real-life females from the privileged upper classes. Only one woman is able to write an Athenian tragedy, that being Phaedra and Euripides' Apollotus. Those privileged women who did learn to read and write were probably taught at home by their mothers. In addition, some women were educated in music and dance, as we see from depictions in Greek vase painting, and lyre playing may have been one of the skills acquired by some upper-class women. Still, though, few were likely to have been sufficiently educated and well-informed to express an opinion about the political issues of the day. Xenophon's fictional character, Iscomachus, in his Oikonomicus, therefore probably speaks for a number of middle-class Athenians when he declares, quote, When I married my wife, she was not yet 15 and had been so carefully supervised that she had no experience of life whatsoever, seeing, hearing, and saying very little. A man should be content, don't you think, if his wife comes to him knowing only how to take wool and make clothes and supervise the distribution of spinning among slaves, end quote. In general, female ignorance would have been viewed by some, if not most, Athenian men as an important part of the social and political barrier erected between women and the outside world. Even so, we should not discount the possibility that Iscomachus is being portrayed as somewhat out of touch with reality. Although Athenian girls may not have been quite so submissive, as is sometimes assumed in scholarship. Overall, the evidence for literacy and education among women is scanty, and what we have almost certainly is the exception, rather than the rule. The only woman in classical Athens who was known to have displayed intellectual accomplishments of any note is Pericles' mistress, Aspasia, who was a foreigner, and none of the female poets whose names have been preserved was Athenian. Elsewhere in the Greek world, although girls received little education, there may have been a few exceptions. The poet Sappho, for example, is thought to have been associated with a school for young women that flourished on the island of Lesbos in the second half of the 7th century BC. And of course, the one society where girls received some education at state expense was Sparta. For some, though, 
The childhood of a privileged Athenian girl could have included periods of public service in honor of the two virgin goddesses, Artemis and Athena. Such service was a mark of high honor, both for them and for their family. At one point in Aristophanes' comedic play, Lysistrata, a female chorus member emphasizes the nobility of her birth by reciting episodes from her childhood. She says that at the age of seven, she was chosen to serve Athena for a year as one of the two Eraphoroi, whose name literally means a carrier of things that must not be mentioned, referring to sacred objects. This is because they made a mysterious nocturnal visit to an underground shrine of Aphrodite in the gardens on the north slope of the Acropolis, carrying unnamed sacred objects in baskets on their head. From other sources, notably Pausanias, we know that their other duties would have included living on the Acropolis, dressing in all white, looking after the sacred olive tree, and helping to set up the loom for the weaving of the new peplos for Athena's statue that she received annually during the Panathenaic procession. Weaving is an art that was frequently performed by women, and therefore must be learned at a young age by girls from their mothers. In addition, the girl also would have been taught how to bake from her mother, specifically how to bake bread, and Aristophanes' character goes on to say that at ten, she was one of the alatrides, or grinders of grain, for the Archegetus, which means leader or founder, and essentially was the epithet of a god or hero, who was considered the originator of a settlement. At Athens, that of course was Athena, and it was Demeter at Eleusis. Very little is known about this role, though but it might refer to the grinding of grain into a special cake that was offered to one of the goddesses. She later served Artemis in her sanctuary at Brauron, where again, we learn from other sources, at the onset of puberty, she would have taken part in ritual dances and masquerades and carried the saffron-colored robe as an arctos, or bear, at the Brauronia, intended to prepare her for marriage. Lysistrata said that she shed the saffron robe which may refer to the races in which the girls ran in the nude. The Arctoi were the priestesses of Artemis, possibly for as long as a year, who celebrated a rite intended to propitiate to the virgin goddess Artemis for the offense that they were about to commit, meaning the loss of their virginity after marriage. This ritual was attended and participated alongside older women and is considered a symbolic death of a girl and the subsequent resurrection of a marriageable woman. After her time at Brauron was complete, and when she was of a marriageable age, a young girl wore a necklace of dried figs, symbolizing fertility, and served as one of the canophoroi, or the one who carried the baskets, called kanon, with all of the offerings or first fruits, the sacrificial knife, and fillets to decorate the bull sacrifice. In civic processions through the city, up to the altar on the Acropolis during Athenian festivals, The nature of the particular ritual mentioned by Lysistrata is unknown, but a number of female cults had canophoroi. In particular, the girls who served this role for the Panathenaic procession in honor of Athena were selected from amongst the Eupatridae families of Athens and were required to be virgins, whose purity and youth were thought to have been essential to ensure a successful sacrifice. A girl who acted as Canaphoros would have advertised the central place of her family in Athenian society and her own availability for a dynastic marriage, and so to prevent a candidate from being selected was essentially questioning her good name. For example, the sister of Harmodius was reportedly rejected as a Canaphoros by the sons of Pisistratus, precipitating his assassination of Aparchus, as we discussed in episode 26.
Aristophanes' congested narrative is no doubt unrealistic for one girl to have experienced every one of these rituals, but it does give a good idea of the kind of educational experiences to which an Athenian girl of higher rank could be exposed to, and possibly be even expected to go through before reaching puberty and thus being married off. For the poorer classes, though, the record is silent. Regardless of whether one actually had the opportunity to participate in all of these religious roles as a youth, they are symbolic of the types of tasks that the girl would learn and use for the rest of her life, and therefore were held with high importance and expectations. And the temporary seclusion away from her family prepared the girl for the trauma of her marriage and the permanent removal from her home. At the same time, she would have been introduced to the role that she was to play as an adult in the religious life of the community. Greek tragedy portrays a remarkable amount of violence taking place between mothers and their children. Although such acts of violence probably did occur, there is no evidence to suggest that in real life it was any more common than in today's society. A more realistic picture of relations can probably be found in a section of Xenophon's memorabilia, in which Socrates chastises his son, Lamprocles, for being bad-tempered with his mother and gives him a long speech on the selfless toil undertaken by his mother, and in doing so he provides a moving and enduring tribute to motherhood. Quote, It is she who is impregnated, she who bears the load during pregnancy, she who risks her life for her child, and she who supplies it with the food with which she herself is nourished. And then having brought it into the world with much labor, she nourishes it and cares for it. And although she has received no good, and the child does not recognize its benefactress, and has no means of signaling its desires, but a mother guesses what it needs and likes and tries to satisfy it, and rears it for a long time, toiling day after day night after night, not knowing what gratitude she will receive in return, end quote. Even so, Lampercles replied that nobody could possibly put up with his mother. No doubt, young boys and girls could be as disobedient then as they can now. Both boys and girls spent a great deal of time in the company of their mothers and slaves. Since fathers were absent much of the time, they played only a minor role in the rearing of their children, at least until the children reached puberty. In fact, boys were raised in the female quarters of the house until about the age of six or seven, at which point it was off to school for him, while girls remained under the close supervision of their mothers until they were married. Up until this point, the girls probably mixed quite freely with the boys. But when the boys began school, the dichotomy between the public male sphere and the domestic female sphere would have started to enter the lives of the children. A school-aged boy would be placed under the charge of a slave who accompanied him everywhere, called pedagogoi, literally child guides, from which the words pedagogy and pedagogue come. The pedagogoi taught the child good manners and could even punish him if he misbehaved. He was an ever-present representative of the boy's absentee father. Of course, the suitability of such slaves for this job varied widely, and many were not at all suitable. Furthermore, it seems that the pedagogoi were generally held in lower esteem by the Athenians in the pecking order of roles that a slave might fill, which is the opposite of what you might imagine. For example, on seeing a slave fall from a tree and breaking his leg, Pericles is reported to have said, quote, There you are. He's only fit to be a pedagogus now. End quote. It is thus odd that the Athenians would choose such people to play such a critical role on the development of their young 
when education, in theory, was considered to be so important to them. Although the mother was the primary figure in a child's formative years, authority, or kratos, was still invested in the father. This authority was formidable and entitled him to enslave his daughter if he caught her in an act of illicit sexual intercourse. Despite the fact that the Greek family was a much more cohesive unit than is typical today, it was not immune to the ills that afflict contemporary society. Although we never hear about children from broken homes, many must have grown up separated from their mothers. Due perhaps to the unrepresentative nature of our sources, we only hear of juvenile delinquency amongst the well-to-do. A fascinating description of one such occurrence is preserved in a speech by Demosthenes, which was written on behalf of a young man named Ariston around the middle of the 4th century BC. Ariston claims to have been the victim of an unprovoked attack while walking home late one night through the Agora. He subsequently sued a man named Conon, who was the father of the boy who played a leading part in the assault. In the speech, he describes the assault. Quote, First they tore my cloak off me, and then tripping me up and pushing me into the mud, they struck me so violently that they split my lip and caused my eye to close up. They left me in this sorry condition, so that I could neither get up nor utter a word. While I was lying there, I heard them making a number of abusive comments many of which were so offensive that I would shrink from repeating them in your presence. One indication of Conan's insolence and proof of the fact that he was the instigator of the whole affair, I will tell you. He began to make a sound an imitation of the song made by fighting roosters when they have scored a victory, while his friends encouraged him to move his elbows around against his sides as if they were wings. After this, I was picked up naked by some passers-by, for my assailants had carried off my cloak." End quote. Ariston then warns the jury that the kind of defense that they are likely to hear from Conan is that there are many young men in Athens from good backgrounds who become infatuated with prostitutes and then come to blows over them with other young men. In other words, the father will argue that such behavior should be treated as indulgence. Ariston, however, maintains that rivalry over prostitutes had nothing to do with the attack and that his assailants held a personal grievance against him. He claims that there was a history of bad blood between Conan's son, Ctesias, and himself. When they were serving as Ephebes, or warriors in training, basically cadets, on the borders of Attica, Ctesias and his brother amused themselves by emptying the contents of their chamber pots over the heads of the slaves of their fellow soldiers. We do not have the speech for the defense, so it is impossible to determine what part Ariston himself might have played in stirring things up. What is likely, though, is that rivalry among gangs of privileged youths featured prominently in a society that encouraged a high degree of competitiveness among all social groups. However, there is no evidence to suggest that Greek society produced a disaffected youth culture that set its face against the values of society as a whole. If you're listening to the history of ancient Greece, that means that you are a fan of the ancient world, and as such, you probably enjoy mysteries like I do. So let me tell you about a new podcast that I love called Unexplained Mysteries. Every week, the hosts explore the greatest mysteries of the past and the present, from the building of Stonehenge to the subject of the famous painting The Mona Lisa. There may not be a simple answer or explanation, but that doesn't mean that there's no explanation at all. And these hosts dig deep searching for answers. Each episode uses captivating storytelling to take you on a journey through Earth's greatest mysteries. With a team of researchers, the hosts use in-depth research and analysis as they look for answers. 
You can check out episodes on the Majestic 12, the Mona Lisa, and Stonehenge right now. And with a new episode coming out every Thursday, you can expect a new mystery every Thursday. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Unexplained Mysteries. Again, that's U-N-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-E-D-M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-E-S. Or visit parcast.com slash unexplained to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unexplained to listen now. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Athenians, both men and women, learned the norms of respectable behavior, not in school, but in the family, and the countless episodes of everyday life. Since the time of Homer, Greek children had learned primarily by watching the world around them and imitating respected elders. Few people in antiquity knew how to read, and most education involved listening and reciting from memory. The problem was not simply that poverty usually compelled children to stay home and work on the farm, but also that, with the exception of Sparta, Greek states did not provide subsidies for public schooling, and so formal education in the modern sense did not exist during the Archaic period. Beginning in the 6th century BC, though, more and more children learned to read and write, but education was mainly in the hands of private tutors, which meant that only the wealthy could afford it. Schools ran by these tutors grew in popularity during the Classical period, but still, most were extremely small, accommodating perhaps no more than about 10 or 15 pupils, although some were considerably larger. For example, Herodotus describes a school on the island of Chios that had 120 pupils. In 494 BC, the roof caved in while the boys were learning letters, and tragically, only one boy survived. Even so, it is highly probable that most children in ancient Greece were homeschooled. Not until the Hellenistic period was a system of universal public education established in some communities for all boys, thanks to foundations that funded teachers' salaries. They included the city of Teos and the island of Rhodes. The exception to the rule was the Spartan state, which imposed a uniform educational system on both boys and girls that we discussed in episode 23. Of course, the only other polis which we have detailed information about their educational system is Athens. The ancient Greek system of rearing and education was often referred to as padia. It incorporated both practical, subject-based schooling and a focus upon the socialization of individuals within the aristocratic order of the polis. An ideal and successful member of the polis would possess intellectual, moral, and physical refinement, so training in athletics was valued for its effect on the body, alongside the moral education which the Greeks believed was imparted by the study of poetry. This approach to the rearing of a well-rounded Greek male was common to the Greek-speaking world, with the exception, of course, of Sparta, where a rigid and militaristic form of education, known as the agoge, was practiced instead. Athenian education thus was inevitably much more private and informal than its Spartan equivalent. Although the Athenians were just as concerned that their sons should know how to behave correctly and to be good citizens, their system of education allowed the individual to develop much more freely and thus quite differently than the Spartans. Although the Athenian state did not require children to be educated and did not involve itself in the school's curriculum, it still sought to uphold certain values. In Athens, it was essentially the father's responsibility to ensure that his offspring received a proper upbringing, 
If he failed to do so, according to a law ascribed to Solon, the child was later freed from the obligation of supporting his father in old age. Furthermore, the state paid for the schooling of those children whose fathers had died fighting for the polis. For the most part, the state did not interfere much in the educational system. However, there were some laws. For example, the orator Ascanes, in a speech against Marcus, cites an Athenian law that forbade parents from sending their children out of the home before daybreak and insisted that they be collected before sunset. With the exception of the pedagogoi, who supervised their young masters at home and accompanied them to and from school, carried their satchels, and sat behind them in the classroom, no adult was allowed to enter the school. If any did, it was considered a capital offense. Also, publicly sponsored competitions sought to encourage high standards of accomplishment. For example, at the aforementioned Apatoria, prizes were given to boys for recitation. Classes for the education of Athenian boys were often held in the private houses of teachers. In many cases, the school itself was simply a single room, or even the corner of a courtyard in the open air. So the number of pupils in any one private house, functioning as a school, were generally small. Furniture was little more than stools or benches, and there were no desks, like we see in modern classrooms. We know very little about Athenian teachers, but similarly, as with the pedagogoi, the status of teachers seems to have been very low. In fact, anybody could set himself up as a teacher, without any qualifications. Of course, there were teachers who were better than others, and they no doubt were in high demand. But still, there were no minimum standards, like we have today. There is also no record of the fees that were charged, but no doubt their pay was poor. An idea of their reputation is given by the orator Demosthenes, in a speech made in the 4th century BC called On the Crown, when he taunted his political opponent Ascanes. Quote, Your childhood was spent in an atmosphere of great poverty. You had to help your father in his job as assistant teacher, preparing the ink, washing down the benches, sweeping out the classroom, and taking the rank of slave rather than of a freeborn boy, end quote. And later, by way of an insult, he adds, quote, you were a teacher, I went to school, end quote. Also, there is no way of knowing how widespread education was. Because democratic Athens required its citizens to be at least functionally literate, it seems that most boys knew their letters at least. Aristophanes makes it clear in the nights that even an ignorant oaf, such as a sausage seller, knew how to read and write. Finally, no one seems to have raised any objections to corporal punishment, and it was accepted as normal and was commonly applied. We are told that even before the boy reached school age, that if he was disobedient, quote, he was straightened up with threats and beatings like a warped and twisted plank, end quote. This probably was the only way for a desperate teacher to keep the child's attention and demonstrate authority, given the little respect that the society at large had for their position. The fact that pupils were allowed to bring their pets with them into class couldn't have helped either, nor did the presence of occasional bystanders who loafed about with nothing better to do. There were no school holidays of the modern type, but the schools were closed on the days on which the city celebrated its various festivals. And so late Gamelion and early Amphesterion, which were roughly equivalent to our month of February, were particularly full of such days, and so that became the nearest thing to a prolonged break from school. A good summary of the traditional elementary education given in Athens, and of the theories behind it, can be found in Plato's dialogue, Protagoras. An Athenian boy first attended school at the age of about seven, and the primary stage of education lasted until he was about 14. 
Basic Athenian education consisted of two major parts, intellectual and physical, or what the Athenians referred to as musica and gymnastica, respectively. Musica was used by the Greeks in a much wider sense than our word music, to include all of the classroom side of schooling. The name is derived from that of the muses, or musai, the goddesses of the arts. And so musica consisted not only of music, but also reading and writing, since music and lyric poetry were so closely intertwined, as well as simple arithmetic. Musica provided students with examples of beauty and nobility, as well as an appreciation of harmony and rhythm. Reading and writing were taught by the grammatistes, which roughly translates as a teacher of letters, as gramma is the Greek word for a letter. It is obviously the root for the English word grammar in all of its variations. For writing, pupils practiced their letters on wooden tablets with wax surfaces, which they etched into using a sharp end of a pen called a stylus and rubbed out with the blunt end. There were also sheets made up of strips of papyrus reed, which could be written on in ink with a reed pen, and broken shards of pottery, called ostraca, also served as scrap paper. When the children were ready to begin reading whole works, the grammatistes then provided them with a grounding in literature by requiring their pupils to learn passages from epic, lyric, and dramatic poetry. The teaching of the grammatistes must have been extremely dull, as learning by heart and continual recitation were stock methods. Memorization thus was the key element in the educational process, and all reading was done aloud, as the Greeks did not practice silent reading. In particular, as soon as the boys were able to read well enough, they would learn the great verses of Homer and recite them aloud in the group. Some even learned these entire poems by heart. For example, in Xenophon's Symposium, Nicaratos claims that his father made him learn by heart the whole of the Iliad and the Odyssey, some 27,000 lines in all. In fact, the poems of Homer were the most widely read literature throughout Greek antiquity, as we know from the fact that more papyri have survived containing scraps of his poetry than of any other literary figure. The myths of not only Homer, but Hesiod, were also highly regarded by the Athenians, and their works were often incorporated into lesson plans, because all kinds of moral lessons were drawn in their poetry in praise of famous men in Greek mythic history, and could be instilled in the young boys so that they may strive to imitate them. Since Greek poetry was intended to be sung to the accompaniment of music, it was partly because of this reason that the Athenian boys also received instruction at the house of a musician known as a kitharistis. They were taught to play the kathara and the aulus and to sing. This was regarded as such an important part of education that in Aristophanes' Wasps, the protagonist, Bedetti Cleon, comically seeks to excuse a dog's thievery on the grounds that he never learnt the lyre. It was commonly played at symposia, much as a guitar might be played at a party today. And so the Greeks regarded that it was essential for a cultured man to be able to sing and play an instrument. They also considered that the right sort of music had a beneficial effect in the molding of character. And so the kitharistes made sure that the boys' souls were familiar with rhythms and harmonies so that they could become more civilized, and by becoming more rhythmic and harmonious in themselves, they could become more effective in word and deed. For more information on music in ancient Greece, check out episode 45. Finally, Athenian boys would begin gymnastica, or physical education, either alongside or just after beginning their elementary education. 
The Athenians thought that physical appearance and fitness were as important as, and a great help to, high moral and intellectual standards. A frequent description of the ideal man occurring in Greek literature is that he is kalos kagathos, literally beautiful and good. A man whose body was in a healthy state meant that they had a body that was able to act as a servant to his mind. And so young boys would not later be compelled to act cowardly in battle and their other duties because of the weakness of their bodies. Furthermore, athletics was intended to be good preparation for military service, which in classical Athens was essentially compulsory from the ages of 18 and 60, if needed, as one was either a rower in the fleet or a hoplite in the phalanx. And so some form of athletic training was vital for boys, regardless of their social background, because one's ability to serve in the military was dependent upon one's physical fitness. For this reason, athletics mirrored the ideals of the military, strength and stamina, and were in fact devised as a way of training for war. Athenian boys were entrusted to a professional trainer known as a pedotribus, and classes were held in a palestra an open-aired courtyard surrounded by a colonnade that was typically a part of a gymnasium. There will be more on that shortly. The palestra was an educational establishment owned privately by the pedotribes, recognized by his purple cloak. Athens contained many palestrae, but none have been fully excavated. Their general layout was similar to that of a Greek house, as there were also rooms behind the colonnade for changing, using the bathroom, and the storing of equipment and a shop from which the boys could buy olive oil if needed for exercising. Boys would strip down totally naked and cover themselves with the olive oil. In fact, the word pedotribes literally means boy rubber, an allusion to the fact that their athletics teacher was the one who rubbed or massaged his students with olive oil before they exercised. After warming up to music, they performed such sports as throwing the discus and javelin, running, jumping, wrestling, boxing, and ball games. According to Galen, there also existed a teacher specifically devoted to instruction in ball games. A popular ball game was Episkaros, also called Epikonos, literally meaning common ball. Highly teamwork oriented, the game was played between two teams of usually 12 to 14 players each, with one ball. It was apparently very violent, at least in Sparta, as one team would try to throw the ball over the heads of the other team. There was a white line between the teams, called the Skouros, and another white line behind each team. Teams would change the ball often until one of the teams was forced behind the line at their end. The general impression seems that the game was quite similar to rugby. A depiction in low relief on the belly of the vase displayed at the National Archaeological Museum in Athens shows a Greek athlete balancing a ball on his thigh. This image is reproduced in the European Cup football trophy. Also, it's pointed out by the sophist Protagoras in Plato's dialogue of the same name that as a general, the sons of the most wealthy went to school the earliest and left the latest. So it seems that child's education lasted as long as their parents could afford to pay their fees, or as long as the parents did not require their sons to be economically productive for the oikos. For most, this seems to have occurred around the age of 14, The children of poorer parents thus had to find some form of employment at that age. Herodotus informs us that in Sparta, some trades and professions were exclusive to certain families, including those of herald, flute player, and cook. In Athens, too, many skills and professions were handed down from father to son, 
partly due to the law requiring an Athenian father to teach his son a skill if he expected to be supported by him in old age. Because if he didn't, legally, he would have been left to his own devices. For example, the Athenian sculptor, Praxiteles, was the son of a sculptor, and both his sons and grandsons were sculptors as well. Other professional skills, including the writing of dramatic poetry, were also handed down over several generations. Overall, though, it is likely that Athenian youths were more free in their career choices than their Spartan counterparts, given the less constricted tenor of Athenian society. But of course, that was mostly the case for the wealthy. The middle and lower classes would have had less freedom, and the lowest classes essentially would have had even less, and they probably ended their traditional basic education at this point, if they even attended, to find some sort of employment or apprenticeship. It should be noted that while the system of education reached far more people in the classical period than in previous times before, there were still large swaths of Athenian society among the poorer classes that didn't send their children to school for long or maybe even at all. And so the level of literacy in Athenian society outside the ranks of the wealthy elite was quite low by modern standards, with only a small minority of the poor being able to do much more than perhaps sign their names. The inability to read and write, though, presented few insurmountable difficulties for most people, who could easily find someone to read aloud to them any written texts that they needed to understand. The predominance of oral, rather than written communication, meant that people were accustomed to absorbing information by ear, as those who could read usually read aloud, and the Greeks generally were very fond of songs, speeches, narrated stories, lively conversation, and the like. The wealthier Athenian boys, though, continued their education in a less formal secondary stage. A crucial part of a wealthy teenager's education was a mentorship with an elder, which in a few places and times may have included pederastic love, as we discussed in episode 71. In the company of their fathers and others older than themselves, they learnt firsthand about adult life in the city. The teenager learned by watching his mentor talking about politics in the ecclesia, the agora, and the law courts, helping him perform his public duties, exercising with him in the gymnasia, and attending symposia and theatrical performances with him. The poet Simonides put it well when he wrote, Polis Andra Didaskai, or the polis teaches a man. The boys also continued their physical education by leaving the confinements of the palestra of the youths behind and exercising now in the wider area that was the gymnasion, a Greek word whose root is the adjective gymnos, meaning naked, by way of the verb gymnazo, which means to train naked. Athletes trained and competed in the nude, a practice which was said to encourage aesthetic appreciation of the male body and to be a tribute to the gods. Those with a particular talent in any one sport were given further training in it by specialists. The gymnasti were the teachers, coaches, and trainers of the athletes. They were responsible for teaching the methods involved in the various exercises and choosing the appropriate athletics for each person to specialize in, according to their skill set and constitution. They essentially were the teenage and adult version of the pedotribi of the youths. The overall supervision of the gymnasia was entrusted to gymnasiarchoi, who were appointed annually, one from each tribe. They were public officials responsible for the conduct of sporting events and games at public festivals, and who directed the gymnasia and supervised the gymnasti. Their duties also included the payment of all expenses connected with the training of the competitors, and particularly expensive were the torch races, called Lampa Deforia, 
And so the office of Gymnasiarchos was one of the most expensive of all the liturgies, or public services, demanded by wealthy Athenian citizens, and therefore was one of the most prestigious. Beneath them in the organizational structure of the gymnasion were ten sophronistae, who were responsible for observing the conduct of the youths, attending all of their games, and supervising the pedotribi. Gymnasia, as well as the palestrae, were under the special protection and patronage of Heracles and Hermes. The first Athenian gymnasion is attributed by Pausanias to Theseus, though this is highly unlikely. Regardless, Solon made several laws on the subject, and according to Galen, these were reduced to a workable system of management in the time of Cleisthenes. While the origins of physical exercise regimes cannot be pinpointed, the practice of exercising the nude had its beginnings in the late 8th and early 7th centuries BC. The same purpose is frequently attributed to the tradition of oiling the body, a custom so costly that it required significant public and private subsidies, as it was the largest expense for the gymnasia. This was because few others have attached so much significance to the cult of physical fitness as the ancient Greeks did, and the notion of physical fitness was so central to their sense of selfhood that competitive athletics was one of the principal means by which they promoted a sense of cultural unity in the form of the various Pan-Hellenic Games. For more information on the Pan-Hellenic Games and the various athletic competitions that the Greeks competed in, check out episode 21. The original iterations of gymnasia were large open areas at city outskirts, not enclosed structures. They tended to be located in suburban areas due to the large amount of leveled space required. Additionally, gymnasia tended to be located near a river or other good source of water supply, enabling athletes to refresh themselves and bathe after exercising. Although only their foundations have survived, they were probably lush, green oases with well-shaded walks. The ancient Greek gymnasion, though, soon became a place for more than just exercise. This development arose through recognition by the Greeks of the strong relation between athletics, education, and health. Accordingly, the gymnasion became connected with education on the one hand and medicine on the other. As the Greek gymnasia started to hold public lectures and discussions on philosophy, literature, and music, and public libraries were also nearby. By the end of the 6th century BC, Athens had acquired three principal gymnasia, the Academy, the Lyceum, and the Kynosargis, all situated outside the city. These were used by Athens' Ephebes and Hobbites as a fitness center, probably on a daily basis. Socializing also went on in the gymnasium. Not only aspiring athletes, but also older men would gather there to converse, gossip, and argue while sitting in the shade beside running water. Since the gymnasia were favorite resorts of youth, they were frequented by teachers, especially philosophers and sophists, who frequently assembled to hold talks and lectures. And so the institution became a resort for those interested in less structured intellectual pursuits, in addition to those using the place for training and physical exercises. The result was that in the 4th century BC, the gymnasia of Athens came to acquire a new identity as centers for philosophical discussion, and they became filled with covered stoas where intellectual pursuit took place, in addition to the normal stadion, palestra, bathing areas, and so forth. Each of the three Athenian gymnasia was rendered famous by association with a celebrated school of philosophy. 
Antisthenes, a pupil of the first sophist, Gorgias, and later Socrates, founded a school at the Kynosargis, from which some say the name Cynic derives and credit him as the founder of cynicism. Another of Socrates' pupils, Plato, established his school in the vicinity of the academy. The name, which derives from a local Athenian hero named Academos, is the origin of our word academic. Half a century later, Plato's own pupil, Aristotle, established a rival philosophical school in the Lyceum. Aristotle's followers at his school were dubbed peripatetics, from the verb peripatio, which means to walk up and down, because of their habit of pacing up and down as they pursued their philosophical inquiries. There will be more on the sophists and the philosophical schools at Athens in future episodes. It is important to note, though, that the topographical coincidence between intellectual pursuit and athletic excellence testifies to the Greek conviction that the two aspirations are not individualistic, but complementary. Plato, for example, considered athletics to be an important part of education, and according to him, it was the sophist Perdiccas who first pointed out the connection between athletics and health. Having found athletic exercises beneficial to his own weak constitution, Prodicus formulated a method that became generally accepted and was subsequently improved by Hippocrates. Galen also put great stress on the proper and frequent use of exercise. Throughout other ancient Greek medical writings, special exercises are prescribed as cures for specific diseases, showing the extent to which the Greeks considered health and fitness connected. The same connection is commonly suggested by experts today. The gymnasti were the ones who prescribed remedies for those that became unwell, and the alepti acted as surgeons and administered any drugs prescribed. It should be noted, though, that a lot of what has been said about the connection with education, health, and athletics was a universal Greek ideal. As usual, we have the most evidence about Athenian specifics, but the concept of padia at large embodied the pursuit of erate, or excellence, the central ideal of all Greek culture. For example, in the Iliad, Homer portrays the excellence of the physicality and courage of the Greeks and Trojans in battle, and in the Odyssey, he accentuates the excellence of the mind, or wit, that was also necessary for winning. This mentality can also be seen in the Greeks' athletic competitive spirit in the Pan-Hellenic Games, their tendency to reproduce and copy only literature that was deemed the best, and competitions in poetry, tragedy, and comedy. Erete was infused in everything that the Greeks did. So far, we have been looking at the education that was provided for an Athenian boy in the traditional manner. Historians tend to divide Athens' educational structure into two periods, old and new. Old education, or that of the 6th and early 5th centuries BC, only featured schooling up to the elementary level, and once a child reached his mid-teens, his formal education ended. Therefore, a large part of his education was informal and relied on simple human experience, as we have discussed. From about the mid-5th century BC onwards, though, the system began to take on a new look, principally in its secondary stage. And so, what historians have labeled as new education became prominent with the introduction of philosophers such as Socrates, as well as the Sophists, which led to an influx of foreign teachers. Athens by now had reached a state of complete democracy. Important decisions were reached by all of the citizens in the ecclesia. 
all of the citizens had the right to take part in the debate, and all of the citizens were eligible for public office. It followed then that to influence the assembled people to one's own way of thinking, and to become politically powerful, it was more necessary than it had been in the past to be a good public speaker, and the old educational model provided no formal training in rhetoric or the art of public speaking. Furthermore, this was a time when all kinds of traditional beliefs, especially those about religion, were coming under attack. Philosophers and scientific thinkers were developing and spreading new ideas about the world and about men and morality. The existing mode of education was a blend of indoctrination and socialization intended to foster traditional values and taught nothing of such subjects as philosophy, physics, astronomy, medicine, or geometry. These gaps were now filled by a new type of teacher called the sophistes, or sophists, a name meaning experts. They were lecturers who traveled from city to city, teaching rhetoric especially, but also all of the other important subjects that were not being covered by the ordinary school curriculum. These more focused fields of study all emphasized the development of philosophical insight and the questioning of conventional beliefs within a framework of logic and reason. This shift naturally caused controversy amongst the Athenian elites, especially those with traditional views on how the youth should be educated. Traditionalists believed that raising intellectuals would destroy Athenian culture and leave Athens at a disadvantage in war. On the other hand, those in support of the change felt that while physical strength was important, its value in relation to Athenian power would diminish over time. Such people believe that education should be a tool to develop the whole man, including his intellect. Regardless, new education prevailed and it provided greater structure and depth to the existing old education framework. The sophists, especially in the early days, were likely to have been non-Athenian. They charged for their teaching and the sons of the more wealthy flocked to study under them. Only a very small percentage of Athenians, though, would have had the means and disposition to provide their sons with any form of higher education, such as what the sophists were providing. One of the interlocutors in Plato's treatise, titled Lacus, states that most Athenian parents, quote, allow their sons to do exactly what they like once they become lads, end quote. And this is likely to be a fairly accurate generalization for how things really were. For the richest and most connected students, they were able to continue their education by studying with these famous teachers, if they so chose to. This occurred in the period after the elementary education was finished, when, as we have seen, they had few binding commitments elsewhere that would take up their time. And so if they could afford it, what we might discuss as higher or tertiary education began for Athenian youths around the age of 16. The teaching of the sophists was mainly intended to produce men who could make successful statesmen, and rhetoric was emphasized because the ability to speak in public was not only the hallmark of a well-educated gentleman, but also a vital attribute for anyone who wished to make a mark for himself in a democratic society, whether in the political assembly, in the law courts, or in more informal contexts, such as at symposia. And so they taught young Athenian males how to speak and how to argue in public, and it was often thought more important to win the argument than to reach the truth. And so in a sense, sophists taught an early version of what we today call fake news. Literature was studied not so much for its own sake as for its style, to improve the student's ability as a public speaker. The art of rhetoric was first taught officially by the sophists around the middle of the 5th century BC, 
but its importance is already evident in Homer, where the ability to be persuasive in public is a prized asset amongst leading aristocrats. While virtually everybody who studied with the sophists would learn rhetoric, the other subjects which a young man studied would vary. Some of the sophists claimed to be able to teach any subject at all, and no doubt their skill as speakers often allowed them to sound impressive on subjects of which they really knew very little. Such behavior on the part of some gave the whole group of sophists a bad name in the minds of many. The word sophist came to mean, as it does in English, someone who argues cleverly, but also dishonestly. Yet there is no question that the best were very good teachers indeed, men like Protagoras of Abdera, Eon of Chios, Gorgias of Leontinoi, Hippias of Elis, Prodicus of Chios, and Thrasymachus of Chalcedon were included among those. Even youths who only studied rhetoric would learn from a good sophist a large amount of literature, logic, and ethics as part of the necessary training for the future orator and statesman. In the absence of universities, these men provided higher education. We will discuss their individual careers in more detail in a future episode. The sophists were roundly condemned by Socrates, who regarded their training as antithetical to the pursuit of philosophy. He did so in part because they took a relative stance on morality, whereas he and his pupil Plato were idealist philosophers who believed that virtue was non-negotiable, so to speak. Many Greeks believed that there was no limit to what sophists would use their persuasive rhetoric to defend. The anonymous treatise, known as Disoi Logoi, or Double Arguments, reveals the moral relativism that many associate it with sophists. It asks questions like, can sickness ever be good? They would say, certainly, if you are a doctor. But what about death? Well, they would argue that death is good for undertakers and gravediggers. The author goes on to enumerate the many examples of cultural differences found in Herodotus in order to demonstrate that no act is intrinsically good or bad. A mental universe in which nothing was purely good or patently evil was not one in which all Greeks wished to dwell, and the sophists taught their pupils the necessary skills in order to argue for either side and win. Similarly, the comic dramatist Aristophanes mocks sophists in his play The Clouds by mischievously transforming Socrates into a quintessential sophist who teaches his pupils how to make the worser case appear to be the better without any regards for the truth. The hostility between practitioners of rhetoric and those who practiced philosophy would endure almost throughout antiquity. Plato was particularly dismissive of the sophists and the Gorgias, which takes its name from one of its most famous and successful practitioners. Incidentally, Gorgias was one of the highest paid sophists. In fact, he became so wealthy that he erected a gold statue of himself at Delphi, the first gold statue to be erected for a human in Greece which was a testimony to the enormous fees that the men of his profession commanded, as well as to the high regard they were generally held by the people, even if they were loathed by the philosophers. Furthermore, the sophists actually introduced their educational programs through the use of advertisements in the attempt to reach as many customers as possible. Nevertheless, it is unlikely that the criticism of Socrates and Plato had much impact on public sentiment, although it may well have been the case that many Athenians would have instinctively concurred with the characterization of sophists as money-grubbing charlatans, especially those who could not afford their services. However, in the 4th century BC, schools of rhetoric began to emerge in the Greek-speaking world including one in Athens run by an orator named Isocrates, indicating that the discipline had achieved respectability. 
Aristotle also instructed his pupils in rhetoric as well as in philosophy, and he wrote a highly influential treatise on the subject. When the Greek states lost their independence, rhetoric ceased to have any political importance, but it still remained the centerpiece of higher education. So let's move away from education and move back to our young Athenians. At the age of 16, an Athenian boy was reintroduced for admission to membership of his father's fratry, thus confirming his right to Athenian citizenship. Two later sources, Hesychius and the Suda, refer to the ritual of the Corian sacrifice that was held on the third day of the festival of the Apatoria, when young men cut their hair, offered an animal sacrifice, and were inducted into their fratries. At the age of 18, whether one was wealthy enough to study a higher form of education from a teacher, or had stopped his basic education years before, and had just learned informally through hanging out in the agora, it was now time for an Athenian male to become a full citizen of the polis. He thus underwent an examination, or dokamazia, by the boule, who determined if he had the capacity to become a citizen, and so if he could prove that both of his parents were Athenian citizens, and that he possessed the physical capacity for military service, he had his name entered into his deemed registrar, as a full-fledged voting citizen of the state. He was now no longer considered a pace, or child, but an ephibos, or the anglicized ephibi, and was required to undergo military training for a period of two years. Although the word can simply refer to a young man or adolescent, literally meaning the one who is on the threshold of adulthood, its main use is for those that entered into an official military training institution, known as the Aphibia. This military training, at least for those of the middle and wealthy classes, would prepare the young man for participation in the phalanx. Those of the lower classes would most likely be destined for the naval fleet once they turned 18. Anyways, the Ephibes would swear what scholars call the Ephibic Oath, in a similar way to what young men of modern military infrastructures swear when they enlist. The applicant would have been dressed in full armor, with a shield and spear in his left hand, and his right hand raised and touching the right hand of the moderator. The oath was taken in the temple of Aglaris, the daughter of Kecrops on the Acropolis, and has been quoted by the Attic orator Lycurgus in his work Against Leocrates in the 4th century BC though the oath is certainly much older. It goes as follows, quote, I will not bring dishonor on my sacred arms, nor will I abandon my comrades wherever I shall be stationed. I will defend the rights of gods and men and will not leave my country smaller when I die, but greater and better, so far as I am able by myself and with the help of all. I will respect the rulers of the time dutifully and the existing ordinances dutifully and all others which may be established in the future. Furthermore, if anyone seeks to destroy the ordinances, I will oppose him so far as I am able by myself and with the help of all. I will honor the cults of my fathers. Witness to this shall be the gods Aglaris, Hestia, Enyo, Enyalios, Ares, Athena the warrior, Zeus, Thalo, Oxo, Hegemone, Heracles, and the boundaries of my native land, wheat, barley, vines, olive trees, and fig trees." This oath, in some capacity or another, has been revived for use in educational institutions worldwide today as a statement of civic virtue. But for the Ephibos, this oath put his civic duties, including his service in the military, under divine sanction. If he broke the oath, he would incur the anger of the gods. After swearing this oath, an Athenian adolescent was then an Ephibos until the age of 20. 
during those two years, he not only trained in the gymnasia, but was put through an unspecified period of isolation from his polis, where he would need to hunt and rely on his senses, aggression, stealth, and trickery, all in order to survive. At the end of the initiation, the Ephebus was reincorporated back into society as a man, achieving the status of hoplite citizen. So now that we have discussed a lot of aspects regarding private life and the upbringing of girls and boys, we're going to shift our focus towards the many scientific and philosophical achievements that were taking place in the classical period. In particular, we're going to move into the realm of the last major Olympian deity that we have yet to discuss, that being Apollo, and to a lesser extent, Asclepius, Orpheus, and Achate, and discuss healing, medicine, oracles, prophecies, and magic over the next several episodes. First up, though, will be something that was of particular interest to the aforementioned gymnasia, as well as the pregnancy process. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 78, Healing and Medicine. (laughs) 